second Bible reading, which comes from Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Feel free to follow along with me on the screen or grab a Bible from the pew and turn to page 1188. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 to 8. Therefore, I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of, the, of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing and perfect will. For by the grace given me, I say to, to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment in accordance with the measure of faith God has given you. Just as each of us has one body with many members, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. This is the word of God. Thank you. Now, anyone watched the wedding last night? Keep your hands up if you enjoyed it. <laughs> um, anyone know what the Bible reading was for last night? Song of Songs, Song of Solomon. Um, the older brother's wedding, Prince William and Catherine, their wedding, the Bible reading was actually the verse we're looking at tonight, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. Um, I thought I said that. I couldn't work that in my sermon, so that's it. There's no other references to the wedding tonight. <laughs> uh, but as we reflect on this passage, uh, we want to actually allow this passage, this Word of God, to affect our lives, to change us, that we would be changed by God and live a life that would honour Him and be pleasing to Him. So let's join in prayer once again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we sit under your word and hear you speak to us, we pray that you'll speak to our minds, convict our hearts, that our lives will be changed so that it will be holy and pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, many of you would know that two weeks ago I went to Sydney for a conference on study leave. Uh, Sydney was a place I lived for four years when I went to Bible college and as you know, Sydney is known for many things, many famous landmarks. Um, the Sydney Opera House. So when we were in Sydney two weeks ago, we went along to see this opera house. Our kids saw it when they were young. They couldn't remember. So we went back, we saw it, we looked, and then we left. That was as much as we saw. And, and we also went to the Harbour Ridge. That's also famous. We drove over it on the Sunday as we went along to church. But there's, in fact, another landmark that's far less known. Perhaps not many of you would know about this one. Another landmark that's in fact far more important, in my mind anyway. And it is this landmark, close to Circular Quay. It's around the corner from Martin Place. And it is this monument that's perhaps 
far more famous, I mean, far more important, but far less famous. Now, the first time I saw this landmark, this monument, was when I was in Sydney years ago in 2008 in my first year of Bible college. A friend at Bible college who lived in Sydney uh, took us around, a, a bunch of us foreigners from Melbourne, from New Zealand, from Queensland, took us around to see the sites of Sydney. And this was the place where we ended. It's called the Richard Johnson Obelisk. It's a monument to mark the place of the first church in Australia. No longer there, that's been destroyed. It's a monument to mark the very place where the first sermon was preached in Australia. And it was preached by a guy by the name of Richard Johnson. At the age of only 31 years old, he was the first chaplain to Australia. He was an evangelical Christian, which means he's a Bible-believing Christian just like us. And he was made chaplain for this new colony on the suggestion and recommendation of John Newton. John Newton, he's the amazing grace guy. And also on the recommendation of William Wilberforce. They wanted a gospel man to be the minister to this new colony. And he was that man, Richard Johnson. And so he arrived on the first fleet on the 24th of January in what year? 1788. 1788. He preached the first sermon on the 3rd of February, eight days later. And this monument marks that place. And if you have a look uh, a little closer, there are four plaques. That's a little reflection of me years ago, much slimmer than now, but anyway. The monument reads, uh, this plaque reads, To the glory of God and in commemoration of the first Christian service held in Australia. Reverend Richard Johnson, the chaplain, being the preacher. Now, do you know what his first sermon was on? Well, on the other side of the monument, it's a, this text is inscribed. It's our first reading, Psalm 116, verse 12. What shall I render unto the Lord for all his benefits toward me? Now, why did he preach on such a passage as his very first sermon to this new colony? Now, if you think about the time, 1788, the first fleet was filled with 750 convicts. Then you had the governor, Captain Arthur Phillip, 213 marines and other officials and servants. It wasn't like there were much benefits for them. New land, big land, but with a whole bunch of convicts and criminals. But he chose to speak as his text that first sermon on Psalm 116. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits for me? Now it's 230 years after the first fleet landed. And that same question is the question I want us to consider tonight, to reflect on. What shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits to me? But of course as we ask this question, we need to ask the question, well, what are the benefits? What are the benefits that God has given to me, to us? What has God done for us? Well, we need to think about that before we think about rendering anything to God in the first place. Well, that's exactly how the Apostle Paul begins in this passage. So have a look with me, chapter 12, verse 1. You see, in view of the first 11 chapters of Romans... It is in view of all that God has done that he would give life to broken, wretched, depraved, dead sinners. 
It is in view of God's loving yet costly sacrifice for us that he would not even spare his one and only son for us. It is in view of God's gracious adoption of us that we would even dare, just as we prayed, to call God Father. It is in view of God's unconditional election of us that he would willingly choose us before the foundations of the earth. It is in view of God's enormous mercy upon us. You see, it is in view of all these things that we are to think about what we are to render to God. Before God wants anything from us, we have to understand what God has given us, what are all his benefits for us. And so have a look, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, that's how he begins. It's to summarize the first 11 chapters. It is in view of God's mercy that should motivate us, should cause us to stir us or to ask that very same question that Richard Johnson asked 230 years later. What, what are we to do? What are we to render to God for all his eternal benefits for us? And so it's worth us reflecting and thinking for a moment. Just try to recall in our heart of hearts what your life was like before God's grace came to you. What were you living for before God's grace came to you? Where were you, where were you headed to before God's grace came to you? You see, whatever it was, wherever you were going before God's grace came to you, it was not heaven. And so in view of God's mercy, in all that God has done, we need to ask this question, what then shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits for me? And so what shall I render? What shall we render? What must we do? Well, what we do, we must always remember that we only do out of response to all what God has done first. And so that's how Paul goes on next. What he does here, he encourages us, he urges us, he exhorts us as individuals in community. And so first he exhorts us as individuals, all of us who are Christians. This is an exhortation to us. If you are not a Christian, then, then it's worth you listening in what is expected of Christians, and hopefully you'll want that too. And so have a look at verse 1 again with me. In view of God's mercy, what do we read? Offer one and a half hours each week to God. Is that what he says? Some of us might think that's too much already. Well, let's have another look. In view of God's mercy, offer one whole day each week to God. Is that what we read? Or in view of God's mercy, let's be more generous. Offer 10% of your life to God. Is that what he says? Or in view of God's mercy, offer 99% of your life to God. Is that what it says? Well, no. What does it say? Verse 1. In view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Not one and a half hours. Not one day, not even 99%, but offer your body, offer your whole life to God, 100%, 24-7, every breathing moment. You see, God deserves nothing less than the whole of us, than the whole of you. Now, this doesn't mean that we offer ourselves as dead Old Testament sacrifices, like dead goats and dead pigeons and dead lambs. But what God is wanting here is a living sacrifice, an active sacrifice, not a passive one, 
not a useless one, but a living, holy, pleasing one. You see, that somehow, just imagine that, somehow by our living, by what we think, by what we say, by what we do, by how we study, by how we work, by how we spend, by how we invest, by how we play, by even how we sleep, by us, we can actually be pleasing to God. By us, we can, in fact, bring a smile to God's face. Just reflect on that. I mean, I find that unbelievably wonderful. If I remember what I was like, you see, that song we, we sing sometimes, I once was lost in darkness night, darkest night, yet thought I knew the way. The sin that promised joy and life had led me to the grave. You see, that was my life. But now my life can be changed to this extreme, that I can be pleasing to God as a living sacrifice. That is unbelievably wonderful. That you, your life, in all you do and all you think, can be a pleasing sacrifice to God. That is unbelievably wonderful. And so our question, what shall I render to the Lord? The answer is our whole life as a living sacrifice. But now notice what Paul calls this type of sacrifice. Verse 1. He says, this is your spiritual act of worship. And so you want to worship God? Well, worship does not mean giving only your Sundays to God. Worship means giving your life to God 100% of the time. Now, it's also worth noting here the word spiritual worship. The word spiritual in the original, it's the word logikos, which is where we get the word logical from. And so what Paul's in fact saying here is that this is our logical worship. This is our reasonable worship. This is, in fact, our rational worship. And that's why in the new NIV, it's translated your true and proper worship. What God wants is authentic worship, reasonable, thoughtful, logical worship. And you see why that makes sense. You see, what God wants is not some mystical trance-like behavior from us, but that we, in fact, engage our minds so that we are consistent with what God has done for us. That is logical. That is reasonable. And so it is totally illogical and totally unreasonable in view of God's mercy that we offer only 50% of our life and keep back 50%. That's inconsistent. And that's illogical worship. You see, it's also totally illogical that in view of God's mercy... We think that only some of us need to offer 100%. Perhaps it's just the elders or the ministers or the missionaries who need to offer 100%. But the rest of us, average church-going Christians, well, we can offer something less. Well, that's inconsistent. That's illogical worship. What's logical is that in view of God's mercy, we offer 100% of our lives to God. Not just our stuff, but us to God. Body, soul, mind, every living cell in our body and all the time. And anything less is illogical worship. Anything less is, in fact, fake worship. And none of us want to, wants to offer fake worship to God, will we? I mean, we can't fool God. Logical worship affects our entire life. In light of the first 11 chapter of, chapters of Romans, this is what worship looks like. It affects our Sundays, it affects our everyday, 
It affects our entertainment. It affects our pleasures. It affects our wallets. And so what shall we render to the Lord? Well, the answer is, it's everything. And how shall we render to the Lord? Well, Paul explains. It is by not being conformed by the world, but being transformed by God. Not being conformed, but being transformed. You see, the world is out to conform us to the world. It's out to get us. And it will happen to us if we don't resist it. You see, the world will get us to love what it loves. The world will get us to live for what it lives for. The world will get us to sin where it sins. And it will conform us to it. Or here, God will transform us by the renewing of our mind. Look at verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world. Don't let this world shape you. It is out to get you. But be transformed. The word is metamorphosis. It's like a complete transformation from ugly caterpillar to beautiful butterfly. That is that type of transformation that is to be expected in all Christians. Not just some, but all. And but how? Well, by the renewing of your mind. You see, it's pretty clear here. The world is out to conform us, or God will transform us by the renewing of our mind. We are to think God's thoughts after him. And so do you see why it's logical worship? That's probably a more accurate word as opposed to spiritual. It is spiritual where our whole life is spiritual, but it is to engage our minds. You see, Christian living always engages the mind, nothing less. And so we cannot come to church each week and leave our minds at home. We cannot open up the Bible each time and just leave our minds in our bed. It won't work. Christian living... It's not mindless, but mindful. And so when people empty their minds to do meditation, to empty all their thoughts, well, it's not a very Christian thing. Christian meditation is to fill our minds with the Word of God, to fill our minds to be filled with the things of God. And that's why we're able to do the last bit of verse 2. Have a look. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. You see, if my mind is filled with God's thoughts, then of course I'll be able to work out and discern, is that pleasing to God or is it not? Should I do that or should I not? Is that wise or is it not wise? And so what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits for me? Well, the answer Paul makes clear to us, it is everything, my everything. Not being conformed, but being transformed. That is my logical worship. In light of all God has done, the first 11 chapters, this is what logical worship looks like. But what we render to God is not just us to God, but it is in community with each other. And that's what Paul gets on to next. You see, Christians are never meant to be alone and live alone and live like hermits, like lone rangers. No, we express our logical worship to God in community. We offer our bodies as living sacrifices to God in community. We do this together. And so Paul here, he makes three simple points. Think rightly about ourselves. Think rightly about each other. And think rightly about gifts. You see, however we worship God individually, and we will do so differently with our lives, some of us will be great administrators. 
Some of us will be great musicians, some of us great organisers, some of us great leaders, some of us great teachers, some of us great at partial care. We are all different in every different way. But there is to be no competition between Christians. In fact, Paul says, think rightly about yourselves. Use your mind again. However differently we worship God, there is to be much humility amongst all Christians. You don't get a big head from worshipping God more or differently. You think rightly about yourselves with great humility. And that's what Paul goes on to say, verse 3. For by the grace given me, I say to every one of you, do not think of yourself more highly than you ought, but rather think of yourself with sober judgment. You see a lot of thinking here. In accordance with the measure of faith, God has given you. And so whatever we're able to do, we are to be reminded, we only can do it because of God's grace, because of God's kindness. And so this means that we are to have a modest and humble view of ourselves, but we're to have a generous view of each other. And that's what Paul goes on to say. We are to think rightly about each other. Now Paul here uses this wonderful excellent illustration of the body that the body of Christ is what the church is like that we are all part of this body this is what the body of Christ is like we're all part of the one body and so what that means is that every part of the body is important and every part of the body has a part to play which then means that we in fact need each other we don't go life alone we need each other we all have something to offer, and we all belong to each other. And so a church without its fingernails is, in a sense, a disabled church. A church without the eyebrow is a disabled church. A church without the pinky toe is a disabled church. Every part is important. I mean, even the pinky toe. Do you know how that affects our living? If you were missing your pinky toe, if we were missing that, we'll have trouble balancing, walking, and even running. And so Paul uses this wonderful illustration to show this is what the church is like, the body of Christ. Look at verses 4 and 5. Just as each of us has one body with many parts, and these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ we who are many form one body, and each member belongs to all the others. And so we are to think rightly about ourselves, be humble. We are to think rightly about each other, be generous. And finally, we are to think rightly about gifts. Everyone has a gift, and every gift has its place. Now, it's important to note here that the word for gift is the word that literally means grace gift. And so what this means is that all gifts are grace gifts. It means that they've all been generously given by God to his people without anyone meriting it, without anyone deserving it. And so for those of us who are gifted in music, it's not because we deserve it, but it is because it is God's grace gift to us for each other. If I'm gifted in teaching or leading, it's not because I deserve it, but it is God's grace gift to us for each other. And so in our final verses, have a look, verse 6 to 8. We have different gifts according to the grace given us. If a man's gift is prophesying, then let him use it in proportion to his faith. 
If it is serving, let him serve. And we do have quite a few in our church, always ready to put our hands up to serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. If it is encouraging, let him encourage. And we also have quite a few of those at our church, always with words of encouragement each week. In verse 8, if it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. Recently, I spoke to an elderly Christian man who said, I don't think I'm gifted in any of the way apart from this gift, and that is to give to give. Well, it is a gift, but I'm sure this man is, is far more gifted than he realizes. But even giving, it's a gift. And then finally, if it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. Now, that's not meant to be an exhaustive list, but it's driving home the same point. There is a variety of grace gifts given as part of our logical worship of God. And so the question, what shall we render to the Lord for all his benefits for me? Well, Paul's answer is that we render everything to God as individuals in community. That is our logical worship, that is offering our bodies as living sacrifices. And so that was the question that Richard Johnson asked in his first Australian sermon, the first sermon preached in our land. And I think even after 230 years, we who benefit in the same way, we need to ask ourselves that as well. In view of God's mercy, in view of all of God's eternal benefits for us, what shall I render to the Lord? You see, Richard Johnson, he not only asked that in his first sermon, in his first um, service, he in fact lived it. A month after he received the royal warrant as chaplain, he married his wife Mary, and then four months later, that's when they sailed on the first fleet. Now you have to imagine that, newly, newly married, and as their honeymoon, 36 weeks out at sea with convicts to a new land. But when he got to Sydney, he saw himself as the minister to every person and desiring that everyone would come to know Jesus, would turn to him. He published a little book that he sent around and, and, and passed around to make clear the gospel that he was on about. And he wrote this in his little pamphlet. He wrote, I have told you again and again that Christ is the way, the truth and the life, and that there is no coming to God with comfort, either in this world or in that which is to come, but by him. He's making clear what he is living for and standing for. And then he goes on to say, They certainly deserve your closest and most careful attention, since it is plain beyond a doubt that upon your knowledge or ignorance, your acceptance or rejection of this gospel, your everlasting happiness or misery must depend. It's good to know, isn't it, the first Christian minister to this land was a gospel man. But you see, life was not easy for him. He continued to render everything to God just as he asked everyone else to. He did so himself. It took him five months before he was able to house his wife in a little cottage. And he continued to preach the gospel far and wide. But the governor, Arthur Philip, he was indifferent to the gospel. He didn't, in fact, like what he was doing. He didn't like him 
telling this new settlement about the gospel and didn't want them to take the gospel too seriously. And after he left, the next governor, Major Francis Gross, he set out to make his life as hard and difficult as possible. He restricted their church service to 6 a.m. in the morning only, and only for 45 minutes, interfered with his ministry, and he got the soldiers and convicts to, to engage in treating him with contempt, insulting him, throwing stones at him as he walked down the streets. But what did Richard do? He continued to render everything to God. He understand Romans 12. He understood in light of all that God has done, what shall I render? Well, he's to render his life as a living sacrifice. Continue to proclaim the gospel of Christ. But what he also did was he set up schools in Sydney, in Parramatta, in Norfolk Island. He set up funds to care for orphans. He even cared for the sick when no one else would the dying convicts on board the second fleet. And more than that, he even befriended the Aborigines. He even gave their daughter an Aboriginal name, Milba. The first sermon preached in our land, in our nation, was for Christians to consider, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits for me? And that must remain our question today. You see, life today is so different, 230 years. Everything and everyone seems just so busy. Everyone's busy. But at the same time, what's ironic is that we don't need to wash our clothes with hands like they did. We've got washing machines, but yet we're still busy. We don't have to grow our own food like they did. We've got supermarkets now. We don't have to manage stables and horses. We've got cars now and public transport. Life is so different today. It seems so much easier, but yet so much busier. But what we need to remember is that it is the same God who gives all these benefits. Same then, same now. The mercy of God that motivated Richard Johnson to do what he did is the same mercy we have received as well. The faith that would help him to persevere as a living sacrifice, rendering all of his life to God, it's the same faith we share in today as well. And so the first sermon preached, In view of God's mercy, what shall I render to the Lord for all his benefits for me? But this is for us to consider today still. And so in view of God's mercy, I can't wake up today and think, I'll only be a 50% Christian today. I mean, that's a bit like me saying, Waking up and saying to everyone, I'm, I'm only going to be a 50% husband today. I mean, it's strange. It just doesn't make sense. In view of God's mercy, I can't just wake up today and to long for and to desire what the world desires. Self-glory instead of the worship of God. Happiness instead of godliness. Comfort instead of service. The temporary stuff of this world instead of the eternal stuff of heaven. No, in view of God's mercy, what must my life be like? What must my mornings be like? I wake up each and every day, not just on Sundays, not just 50% of the time. No, I wake up each and every day knowing, not knowing, in fact, what the world, what the world or the day will bring, but I wake up each and every day wanting to offer my life to God as a living sacrifice today. 
in all the little decisions I make, in all the ways I use my time, in all the ways I use my money, in all the ways I speak, in how I build, how I encourage. That is my logical, rational, reasonable worship of God. And it is out of response of all that God has done. You see, we've never, we're not called to be comfortable Christians. It's a costly one. But it is a fruitful one and a God-pleasing one. What shall I render to God for all his benefits for me? Now, this might just be me, but I need daily reminders. I'm not sure about you. Easy to be conformed to the world. Love what it loves. But a prayer I've learned over the last few years, in fact, a a prayer I borrowed from Peter Adam. Now, you don't borrow prayers, do you? You steal it because you don't give back prayers. But I use this prayer and he's finally, I mean, he's kindly shared all his prayers around. But Peter Adam prays this prayer, which I've used for the last few years. It reminds me to begin each day thinking about what shall I render to God today? And this is the prayer. These are the words. Today I offer myself to you to love, worship and serve you. Please help me to serve you today in all that I plan to do and in the unexpected opportunities you send. Please increase my proactive love, friendliness, tolerance and generosity and my sympathy, patience and forbearance. Please give me wisdom in knowing you, living for you and serving others. And may this day be the best day of knowing, loving and serving you and living for your glory. I need the constant reminder and that's my prayer now. So what about the rest of us? What shall we render to God? Well, in light of the first 11 chapters, God wants everything. My body is to be a living sacrifice. That is my logical worship. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, in light of your wonderful and costly mercy, help us to offer our lives as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to you, knowing that this is our rational, authentic, logical worship. Help us to live each day remembering who we live for and whom we belong to. So we pray, Lord, that this day and tomorrow and every day after this, that it will be the best day of knowing, loving, serving you and living for your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.